In early July 2003, the city of Bakersfield in California was rocked by the horrific slaying of the Harper family. Five members of the family had been brutally murdered in their home, the youngest of which was just six weeks old. When police entered the house, the crime scene initially seemed like a home invasion gone wrong, but a closer look revealed that nothing had been stolen, and the killings had been so aggressive and hateful, it was clear that someone wanted this family dead. With their main suspect offering a solid alibi, the investigators tasked with solving these murders knew they needed to call in reinforcements and to dig deeper in order to capture the murderer and to put this monster behind bars. Forty-six-year-old Vincent Brothers seems to have it all. The former Marine found himself in a great job as John C. Fremont Elementary School's vice principal, and he was well-liked and respected by his colleagues and students. Vincent was also married to his loving wife, Joni Harper, and together they had three beautiful young children. Their first child, Marcus, was born in 1998, and two years later they got married and had their second child, Lindsay, in the year 2000. Things hadn't always been perfect for the couple, and after finding out that her husband, Vincent, had been cheating on her, Vincent and Joni separated that year. Despite multiple attempts to rekindle their relationship, the marriage between Joni and Vincent was annulled in 2001. Throughout these tumultuous times, Joni found it difficult to ignore the deep love she had for Vincent, and by late 2002, they were back together and remarried in January of 2003. A few months later, in May, they had their third child together, who they named Marshall. Regardless of their past, it seemed everything was finally coming together again for the family. On the 2nd of July, 2003, Vincent Brothers left Bakersfield to go and visit his mother in North Carolina and his brother in Ohio for the long July 4th weekend, and he left behind Joni and their three children. Joni's mother, Ernestine Harper, moved into the family home to help Joni out with the children. A few days later, on the 6th of July, 2003, Joni took her children, including six-week-old Marshall, to the church with a helping hand from her mother, Ernestine. Joni was dying to show off Marshall to her beloved church members, who had yet to meet the family's latest addition. The morning went off without a hitch, and once proceedings had concluded, Joni and Ernestine met up with Kelsey Spann, Joni's best friend, for lunch. They then headed home to rest up for the evening service that was taking place later that day. Joni never arrived for the evening service, however, and over the next few days, repeated calls from those closest to her went unanswered. Slightly alarmed by this sudden change in behaviour, Kelsey decided to visit Joni at her home and see if she was alright. Maybe there was an issue with the home phone, or one of the children had fallen ill. But tragically, the reality was far, far darker. From the outside, everything looked as it should. Kelsey was unable to open the front door, so she tried to access the house through the patio. The door was unlocked, so she was able to get inside. Shortly after 7am, a 911 operator answered a call from a frantic Kelsey Spann, looking to report multiple murders. As she had entered the home, Kelsey found Ernestine lying in the hallway outside her bedroom. She had been shot twice in the face at close range. It was clear she had been dead for some time, so Kelsey rushed through the rest of the house 
to try and find Joni and the children, clinging to the hope that the same fate hadn't befallen them. Tragically, all hope was lost when Kelsey entered another one of the bedrooms. There she found the bodies of Joni and her children. Minutes after Kelsey made the 911 call, police arrived at the scene. They found Joni lying face down in the bed, and the attack on her had been particularly vicious. She had suffered multiple stab wounds and gunshots to the head, upper chest area and back. Lindsay, who was one month away from turning two years old, had been shot once in the back. She lay there still wearing the blue dress she had proudly shown off at church two days earlier on the 6th of July. Marcus was found next to Joni. He had been killed by a gunshot wound to the top right side of the head before his body was covered by a sheet. His eyes were still open and he had bitten his right hand so severely his teeth had gone down to the bone. Investigators theorized the young four-year-old had been awoken during the attack on his mother and bit down on his hand due to the sheer terror he felt in the moments before his death. For a brief moment, the investigators believed Marshall was missing, but a further look at the crime scene proved this false, as he was found under a pillow near Joni. Like Lindsay, Marshall had been shot once in the back. The investigating officers then had the impossible task of breaking the news to Vincent Brothers that his entire family had been taken from him. He was tracked down to the complete other side of the United States, in North Carolina, where he had been visiting his mother, and when he was told the news, he completely broke down. While the investigators did consider him a suspect at first, as they always look at the family and people close to the victims, it was not possible that Vincent was involved. Vincent had left Bakersfield on the 2nd of July, four days before the murders occurred, and he was 2,300 miles away in North Carolina. CCTV footage from the airport confirms that he had landed at the airport and was where he said he was. Vincent also had receipts from a store in Ohio that he presented to the investigators to prove his whereabouts. It wouldn't have been possible for Vincent to make it from the store back to California in that time frame, so the police had a lot of work to do to try and find out what had happened to his family. As the police jumped straight into their investigation, Vincent returns to Bakersfield on the 11th of July. While he missed the memorial service, he did attend the funeral on the 16th of July. When questioned by the police, Vincent was completely inconsolable and he mumbled through sentences and was unable to provide much information to detectives. The bodies of Joni, Ernestine, Marcus, Lindsay and Marshall were taken for forensic examinations. The results from the coroner gave the investigators much more information to go on. They found out that Joni had initially been killed after multiple gunshot wounds. They also theorized that instead of fleeing the scene, the murderer then went to the kitchen where they grabbed a knife from the butcher block, returning to the bedroom to stab Joni repeatedly. They also assumed that Joni had been killed in her sleep as her body had been found with the television remote control still between her legs. They believed that if she had been awake and had fought back, the remote control would have slipped and moved. Once this was done, they took the television off the wall, but instead of stealing it, they placed it on the floor. Joni's purse had also been rummaged through and dumped onto the laundry floor. Although nothing of value was taken, it was clear this was no robbery gone wrong, and that was just what the killer wanted the authorities to think. Leeds detective Jeff Watts initially decided to look at everyone around the Harpers. Joni's mother, Ernestine, 
had a history of community activism, and she had been involved in protecting people that may have been wronged within the community. Because she was an activist, investigators believed there may have been a chance of somebody threatening her and her family. Family members also mentioned that because of her activist past, Ernestine had become paranoid and had got herself an antique revolver to protect herself. On closer inspection of this gun, investigators concluded that Ernestine had tried to fire the revolver six times, but the revolver had failed her. Their next step, therefore, was to look into whether anyone with a violent past in the surrounding area had made threats towards the family, but this lead sadly fell through. As the investigation entered into the fourth week, Bakersfield Police Department enlisted the assistance of FBI profiler Mark Sephoric. After reviewing the crime and how each murder had occurred, Mark concluded that the person who carried out this crime was goal-driven. They had set out to murder this family and wouldn't finish until the job had been carried out. Mark was confident that the killer knew Joni, as he felt she was the main target of the attack. She had suffered the most injuries out of anyone in the home and had been stabbed post-mortem. This showed Mark that there was intense anger being directed at her from the suspect. As the investigators began speaking to Joni's friends, they told them some worrying information about her relationship with Vincent. Joni had told her friends that their marriage was in trouble again, but unlike the first time, Joni was now fearing for her life, even telling her friends she was afraid of her husband and what he might do to try and get rid of her. So once again, he was back on their radar. As they dug further into Joni and Vincent's relationship, the investigators discovered the reasoning behind the 2001 annulment of their marriage. While Vincent cited irreconcilable differences, Joni claimed fraud had taken place. This was because Vincent had failed to inform Joni that he had been married twice to other people before her. Joni's friends were also able to reveal that Joni was not happy in the marriage, and in fact, she was pursuing a second divorce. Detective Jeff Watts who was leading the investigation back in Bakersfield, also learned of how Vincent had first reacted when hearing about the murders of his family. Though he did seem inconsolable, it struck him as odd that Vincent failed to ask how his wife and children had died. As they further uncovered Vincent's history of harassment and his former failed marriages, the investigators were growing convinced that Vincent Brothers was responsible in the murder of his family. But how could this be, seeing as he had been 2,500 miles away, and he had store receipts proving this? And who was the real Vincent Brothers? Was he really this all-loving and kind vice-principal? Vincent Edward Brothers was born on the 31st of May, 1962, in Bellport, Long Island. He came from a large family that consisted of 10 children, but Vincent stood out amongst his siblings as a responsible, hard-working young boy. After graduating from high school, Vincent served in the Marine Reserves before getting his master's degree from Norfolk State University in the 1980s. It was here that Vincent began dating a fellow university student, and in 1988, she gave birth to Vincent's first child. Vincent was 26 years old at the time, and he questioned whether the infant girl was his, but a court-ordered paternity test would prove it true. After this, Vincent was ordered to pay a monthly child support amount of $350, and he was awarded joint custody and visitation rights. 
Vincent had a long history of relationship issues with multiple women, and in 1988, the same year his first daughter was born, Vincent was charged and convicted of misdemeanor spousal abuse. He was, however, handed an extremely light sentence of just six days in jail and probation time. A few years later, in 1992, Vincent married again, but this marriage didn't last long either. This second wife claimed that Vincent had been physically abusive towards her, even going as far as to threatening to kill her. As Vincent's first wife had done, his second wife also filed for divorce not long into the marriage. The next incident involving Vincent came in 1996, whilst he was working at Emerson Middle School as vice principal. He became so obsessed with a woman who worked there, and she alleged, in a particularly violent incident, that he grabbed her while she was visiting his home and dragged her into his bedroom. She tried to call the authorities for help, but he ripped her phone from her hand. But thankfully, the young woman managed to escape before Vincent could go any further. Shockingly, when she tried to file an official report with the local police, they persuaded her not to follow through with it, since Vincent was thought of as a respected member of the community. Vincent felt empowered by the lack of police action, and he continued his harassment. Vincent often touched her inappropriately, and eventually she took a leave of absence due to Vincent's behaviour. This angered Vincent so much that he began calling her and leaving her threatening messages. The woman had approached the school multiple times with complaints about this, but there are no records of him ever being punished for the harassment. He was, however, transferred to another school in the year 2000, John C. Fremont Elementary School in Bakersfield, California, and it was here that Vincent first met Joni Harper. At the time, Joni Harper was working as the campus supervisor for security, and Vincent did well here. He was well-liked by all accounts. The students liked him, and he quickly earned a reputation as a caring man who happily walked them home to make sure they got back safely. Vincent and Joni's relationship moved quickly, and as previously mentioned, the pair married that same year. He once made headlines in Bakersfield as being the loving and caring vice principal who often escorted his students home and made sure they were safe and cared for. As the police looked further into Vincent and his alibi, they found out he had moved out of the family home in April, three months before the murders. This was due to constant conflict with his mother-in-law, Ernestine. They then decided to go to the stores where his receipts had come from, in the hopes that they were equipped with surveillance cameras. This would either prove that Vincent was not the murderer, and he had been in Ohio at the time, or it would blow his alibi wide open. Thankfully, one of the stores did have footage from that day, and it showed a man entering and buying a few items with Vincent's card, but this was not Vincent. It was his brother, Melvin. Armed with the footage, the investigators brought Melvin in for questioning, and he broke down quickly. We've got you making the purchases after telling a lie. We've got you using his credit card and signing his name to the purchases. He told them that Vincent had instructed him to go to various stores and to make purchases using his name and card. 
Melvin also admitted to forging his brother's signature and that he had no knowledge of his brother's whereabouts between the 4th of July through to the 7th of July. I didn't know where this was at. Just like I tell you right now, I don't know if he was in California doing that or not. You're lying to me right now. Melvin also revealed to the investigators that Vincent had left his mother's home on the evening of the 4th of July and only returned on the 7th meaning there was plenty of time for Vincent to have returned to Bakersfield and carried out the murders. Detective Jeff Watts also learnt from Joni's friends that Vincent had volunteered to help Joni one day by taking her car to be serviced. Joni accepted and handed Vincent a set of her car keys, and with her car keys was also a key to her residence. It was assumed that Vincent had made a copy of Joni's house keys, which had then allowed him to enter the residence on the day of the murders. Police also received a call from one of the neighbours, claiming that he had seen Vincent Brothers leaving the Harper home that day through the patio doors. It was concluded that on the 2nd of July 2003, Vincent flew to Ohio to visit his brother in order to establish an alibi. When he touched down in Ohio, he rented a Dodge Neon from Dollar Rent-A-Car and drove back to Bakersfield on the 4th of July, murdered his family on the 6th, and then drove back to Ohio, arriving late on Monday the 7th of July. The following day on the 8th of July, he and his brother Melvin then drove to North Carolina to visit their mother. Detectives seized the rental car and the records proved that while the car was in Vincent Brothers' possession, Vincent put more than 5,400 miles on the car, more than enough mileage for him to have driven to Bakersfield and back. The radiator and air filter of the car was also taken to the Bohart Museum of Entomology for testing. I got a phone call from the Bakersfield police asking whether or not we could tell where a vehicle had been based on the insects that were on the radiator. And I said, I don't know but let's try. Dr. Lynn Kimsey handpicked over a hundred insects from the car and inspected them closely. One of the first species that jumped out to her was a grasshopper that was not native to Ohio. This grasshopper was in fact found in western regions such as Oklahoma and North Texas. The grasshopper was interesting because, you know, grasshoppers, they look kind of similar from across the country, but this one had bright red legs called the red-shanked grasshopper. And the coloration was very distinctive. As Dr. Kimsey managed to identify each species, she clearly mapped out a path and proved that the car had left Ohio and had traveled west across the country. She even managed to identify species that proved that the car was driven at night. One of the things that we found that was kind of interesting is that we found uh, insects called antlions, which fly around at night. So. There you've got a nocturnal insect and one that's normally associated more with arid regions. Finally, Dr. Kimsey identified a species that proved that Vincent Brothers had driven his rental car all the way to California. The only insect that we got from the West that's found very abundantly in California was the paper wasp. And just like that, Vincent Brothers' alibi completely melted away. On the 30th of April 2004, Vincent Brothers was arrested and charged with five counts of first-degree murder. The final piece of evidence they needed came in the form of a piece of latex glove found in the laundry. It had come off while the items of Joni's purse were rummaged through. 
when a DNA analysis was carried out, the results showed it was a 1 in 16 billion match to Vincent Brothers. Vincent went to trial in January of 2007, and Lisa Green was the acting prosecutor. The prosecution believed the murder had been financially motivated, and that Vincent knew Joni was planning to divorce him, and the child support payments on their three children would equal a fairly substantial amount. They had the evidence from the latex glove, along with 5,424 miles that Vincent had clocked up on the rental car from the 2nd of July to the 11th of July. The prosecution brought up many witnesses to the stand, including Professor Lynn Kimsey from the University of California, who had done the testing on the car and had found several insect species that could only be found in the West. They also introduced video evidence that proved that Vincent's brother, Melvin, used his credit card at Walmart. The final witness for the prosecution was Franklin School Principal, Carla Tafoya. She alleged she had been in an on-and-off-again relationship with Vincent for years before she broke things off with him in 2002. Carla told the jury that she had slept with Vincent in the weeks that led up to the murders, proving that Vincent's adamant denial of past affairs was untrue. The defense claimed that they were trying to discredit Vincent Brothers' character, and his extramarital affairs did not make him a murderer. They claimed that Vincent Brothers had spent the time driving around with his other brother Troy, which was why Melvin did not know where he was from the 4th through to the 7th, but when it came for Troy to take the stand and confirm this, he vanished. The defense then had to scramble and instead bring Vincent himself on the stand. Vincent denied the prosecution's claims of his multiple affairs and maintained his innocence. Okay. Vincent? Edward Brothers. On the stand, Vincent tried to fool everyone with his Oscar-winning performance, and he tried to portray himself as the heartbroken, innocent father and husband. I got people alive in Melbourne. Um, I called my wife. What was the conversation? Um, it's called a checkup. Check on the kids. Um, I checked. Uh, I checked on. Make sure everybody was okay. Joey. Marcus. Lindsay and Marshall. And Miss Harper. In a shocking turn of events, the defense constructed a story that placed Vincent Brothers at the scene of a car crash on the day of the murders. They claimed that on the 6th of July, the probable day of the murders, Vincent Brothers had hit a miner who was riding their bike with his rental car back in Columbus, Ohio, so there was no way he could have committed the murders that day back in Bakersfield. The defense even brought out a witness who suggested that the driver of the car that day could very well have been Vincent Brothers. Did you then leave the scene and drive away? No, I uh, put the car in gear and asked him, is he okay? And he had jumped up and picked up the bike. Um, I believe it was around 7. 7 p.m.? Yes, ma'am. Detective Jeff Watts, however, managed to pull apart the defense's story by finding the real man who had been involved in the crash, and they put him on the stand to prove that Vincent Brothers was lying. Vincent Brothers had clearly just stolen this man's story and had tried to use it as his own in order to create a new alibi. The jurors had just caught Vincent Brothers in a lie. You remember uh, a car being involved in a car accident in 2003, sir? Sure. 
Finally, on the 15th of May 2007, after two days of deliberation, Vincent Brothers was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder. We the jury find the defendant, Vincent Edward Brothers, guilty of felony to wit murder of Joni Harper. Murder of Ernestine Harper. Murder of Marcus Harper. Murder of Lindsay Harper. Murder of Marshall Harper. During the sentencing hearing, family members were allowed to read statements, and one of these statements came from Vincent Brothers' only surviving child, Margaret Kern Brothers, the first child he had with his first wife in 1988. Margaret said that she was resigning from the Brothers' family, and that after she walked out of the courtroom that day, she would be known as Margaret Kern, not Margaret Kern Brothers. She said, I am leaving my name with him. I don't have a father now. He is just a man handcuffed to a chair, looking straight ahead. He will never see me again, until it's time to die. On the 27th of September, 2007, Superior Court's judge, Michael Bush, sentenced Vincent Brothers to death by lethal injection for his crimes. Vincent Brothers is currently housed in St. Quinton State Prison, where he awaits his execution. Now I've covered quite a few fathers who murder and annihilate their families, but this one I think is up there, with Lam Long and Ernest Holaver, both monsters who similarly and selfishly killed their entire families. Vincent Brothers fools everyone by portraying this perfect character, that he was this loving and caring vice principal, when in fact, he was just an evil and horrible man. I can't even begin to imagine what little Marcus must have been feeling when he saw his father brutally attack his mother, if he did wake up in that moment and witnessed it. It's truly a harrowing image, and I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like. Poor Joni loved her husband and just wanted a happy life and a better life for her children, and I do think she knew that he was cheating on her, so decided to end the relationship. But instead of letting her go and let her live freely from him, Vincent decided to brutally murder her and his children and his mother-in-law, rather than just pay to help support his children. Overall, this was a really hard case to cover. These ones often are, but I think it's always so important to remember these victims' lives. And as always, rest in peace, Joni, Ernestine, Marcus, Marshall, and Lindsay.